The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. This is episode number 163. We are well into our third year. Also, while this podcast will not go up until May 2020, it's right now April 2020, and so we're all in the middle of the whole COVID-19 situation. But I just want to make the point that if you know someone who is addicted or if you yourself are addicted, don't wait until this all blows over. Get help now. Get help now. There are so many resources out there for you. All you have to do is reach out. You know, you can reach out to our sponsor, which is Narconon Ojai. It's an anonymous phone call. No one's going to take your name. No one's going to contact you if you don't want them to. And that number is 866-231-5924. But the addiction pandemic is not going to go away just because the COVID-19 pandemic goes away. So it's very important that you reach out for help now. Today we have an interview. Today we are interviewing a lady named Trisha Posner. You may, if you've been listening to our podcast, you listen to the episode with her husband, Gerald Posner. He just wrote an in-depth, I don't know if I would call it an expose, but I would say an in-depth investigative nonfiction book about big pharma. Um, its beginnings, the the dirty, the lies, the you know the whole thing um, behind pharma, and the fact that really there is, um, without becoming a conspiracy theorist, which I'm not, there definitely is a plan to drug the citizens of this country as much as possible. So you should check out his book, Pharma. But today we're going to be talking to Trisha Posner, his wife. Trisha is a British nonfiction writer. She's the author of This Is Not Your Mother's Menopause, One Woman's Natural Journey Through Change, No Hormones, No Fear, and recent, more recently, um, in the last few years, she wrote a book called The Pharmacist of Auschwitz, The Untold Story, and that's why we're talking to her today. She has worked on 13 investigative books of nonfiction with her husband, Gerald. She has also written articles and profiles for national magazines, including Salon, The Huffington Post, and The Daily Beast. From 2005 to 2007, she was a columnist for Miami's Ocean Drive magazine. One column, Cultural Chatter, covered topics including local preservation battles and news profiles. The second, Health Watch, was about developments in health. Tricia has also been a commentator on television, NBC, MSNBC, and Fox regarding her journalism. Before turning to journalism, she was in fashion and music for 20 years. I'm all about that. When she's not working on researching or writing, she relaxes by delving into mixed media art. Let's talk to Tricia Posner. So Tricia... Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I promise I'm not going to put you on the spot. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Joni. Thank you. Absolutely. So we're, ba- we're mainly focusing today on your book, The Pharmacist of Auschwitz. And I don't want to get too much into that specific thing at the beginning, because I'm hoping that people would hear that and go, what does that mean? And, you know, what does that have to do with the whole addiction subject that we talk about. So what is your background? Like what, what, tell me about your background that led you ultimately into writing a book like this? Well, my background, I'm originally from England, born in London, um, and uh, brought up in a, what we would call a modern Orthodox Jewish family. So I was surrounded a lot by tradition, and at the same time, because it was just after World War II, um, going to school there was very, very difficult. It was, um, how can I explain? You were picked on, it was bad enough being picked on for so many different things in, in life, but this was a particular one. It was because of being Jewish, because of religion. And um, the home life was very disruptive as well because my father was a gambler-holic. 
So we moved many, many, many times and I went to many, many different schools. And it seemed to be every school I went to, there was always this dirty Jews or Jews have big noses, head put down the toilet. So I had all this and plus, hard to believe I wrote a book, but I'm <laughs> dyslexic as well. So you know, had all these things on top of this. And, um, you know, Tricia, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it, I, I find it, I, I don't understand why after World War II, with right. all of the atrocities perpetrated on the Jewish people, right. how there would, you would find that in Great Britain after the I war. Know. I know, but it was, it's been there for a long, long time. There, there are different characters that led marches on the streets, swastikas on, um, you know, the graveyards and everything. It's been there. I think after World War II, the Jews were blamed for World, you know, World War II in a, in a crazy way, as it sounds. And then we were also segregated in England, which is very hard for people to understand. But it was, there weren't ghettos, but there were certain neighborhoods you could not live in. It would say, you know, no Jews, no blacks, no dogs. And um, there were clubs, there were all different types of restrictions. So what happened was the Jewish community kind of huddled together in these little areas. So you had your butcher, your baker, your candlestick maker. Um, and it was, as, as a child, it was hard to understand. I would go, you know, I, my mother wanted me to go to what they call an all Jewish school and all girls. And that was just like too much for me. So I was <laughs> right. rebellious. And so I went to, going to a mixed school, um, that's when I found out that and it was, it was still very confusing for me. Very, very confusing. And that happened until I left school and went to work and had to put down my religion or my, what they would call those days, my Christian name, which was Levine. So it's very hard to, you know, not to say who you were. Right. Uh, but uh, there, there was, you know, the different characters. There was like a Colin Jordan that marched. There was Mosley. There was the brown shirts, black shirts. Um, and my, my mother's father was a big fighter. So he really um, made, made his three girls, my mother and this was very strong. And they put that strength into me. So I was a bit of a fighter. I could always get through it in some way or another. But then, as I said before, the you know, all the disruption at home as well. Right. So your father was addicted to gambling. Yeah, I didn't know that till much later. But what happened was, uh, I remember walking with my husband, Gerald, and we were with my mom much later in life. And I said to her, you know, why did we move 16 times? You know, 16 scores, different people, different environment. And she looked at me, she said, well, your father was a gamblerholic. And I was like, oh, now that makes sense. Oh, because wow. we lived very high and very low. And I mean low. Right. And if it wasn't for, um, and then eventually he just took a trip and left. If it wasn't for my mom's sisters and her mother, we would be on the street. We would have been on the street. So, wow. so I've been brought up with these really strong women. So I'm very, very lucky that way. Very yes. Lucky that way. And yes. my aunt and my uncle really did a lot of taking care of me when everything was really bad. Understood. So what did you, what did you major in in college? I didn't. I left school at 16. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, there I, you go. I majored on streetwise. I became a streetwise person. I went right into the one thing that was so natural for me and so easy, and that was fashion. Ah, that's right. And, uh, it was very hard to get a job, and I eventually did get a job, but uh, it was just one of those... It just, I saw everything in my head and it just all came together. It was just a very, very easy thing. And then I went on to different, went, lived in Spain for a bit. I was like kind of this wanderer, went all different places and ended up in America and met Gerald. <laughs> okay. And then, but your first book was, was not The Pharmacist of Auschwitz. What well, was your first my book? My first book was This Is Not Your Mother's Menopause. And um, it was an eye-opener for me. It was, I'll make it very, very brief, but it was, I went to the gynae, gynecologist. He told me I was in full-blown menopause and I was like, me? <laughs> no, he helped me, you know? And I went home and I told Gerald and Gerald said, you know, do what you do best, go and do your research. And so I did a lot of research and um, did a few proposals, 
got rejected, I have to say, and then eventually uh, Random House accepted it. And I ended up doing a book on uh, menopause. That was, and it was all about going through um, menopause natural. And that's because for me, there's so much breast cancer in my family. Oh. oh, I had to find a way of not using hormone replacement therapy. And that's, that's how that book came about. And uh, it became quite a little journey. I learned a lot about myself and about menopause. Understood. And then was there another book between that one and the first? Yeah, there was a, because, um, you know, pharmaceutical, as we know, um, was touting HRT. So the, um, I, it was very hard to get publicity. It was very hard to get, although I did get the Today Show, which was unusual. Um, and I, the Women's Health Initiative came out with saying that after all these years, hormone replacement, after X amount of years, you know, for breast cancer, cervical cancer. And so it was accepted. And so therefore my publisher allowed me to update the book with all that information in it. Okay. Or I felt like it was, you know, it was, it was very, it was, it was, I was lucky for that, but you know, it's such a big industry hormone replacement, you know, when you're selling a product and you're telling women, you know, in their late forties to fifties, you're going to look, I mean, excuse me for saying this, but everyone, but I'm not saying you're going to look like an old hag. You're going to be wrinkled and you know, your skin's going to sag and you're going to be, you know, unattractive and you're going to lose all your desires. I mean, if someone said to you, here's a tablet, you know, it's very, very, uh, you know, it's seductive for some yes. people. It, so, is sed it is seductive and it's something that, um, you know, and it goes right along with what we talk about on this podcast, you know, when uh, someone says, oh, here's a painkiller or yeah, exactly. here's, a, here's a, a pill that's going to make you happy and not yeah, depressed, exactly. you know, exactly. this is, it's the same thing. And, you know, we put it back on the listeners. You have to do your own research. You can't just do it because the doctor says you should do it. That's well, not, right. But, but that's what's so scary is because it's, and then that's a drug that's directed at women. Right. Okay? So we know exactly every button to push. And what you said, you have to go out and do your own research. That's but right. some of us want the easy way out because going the other direction of alternative homeopathic, whichever you want, natural, is much more work. And it can be a little expensive at times, you know. Yep. But, and, and of course, it's, it's the, the pill pushing, come, you know, the pill pushers. Right. So what led you from researching menopause and natural ways to the pharmacist, pharmacist at Auschwitz. And I don't think I've said his name, uh, so you can... Victor Capesius. Say it again? Victor Capesius. Okay. So what yeah. led you to uh, that? that is, is, well, when I met Gerald um, on a blind date, uh, and we hit it off, um, he, he had uh, a lawsuit that we had pro bono for the uh, twins of Auschwitz and Mark Berkowitz, Mark Berkowitz was one of them and um, he ended up getting all these documents on Mengele and um, on Joseph Mengele, the, uh, the angel of death. He was the main doctor that worked in um, Auschwitz and that's where Victor Capesius and him kind of were at the front lines, you know, choosing the, the victims right to, to death, left to live to slave camps. Human experimentation, yeah, human, listeners. Yeah. Human experimentation. Yeah, human experiment. Yeah, a lab, just a lab full of, I mean, thousands of people, obviously. And uh, he managed um, to go to, um, when the bones were exhumed of Mengele, when they were found, he, um, he met, the son, Joseph Mengele's son, Rolf Mengele. And he was coming to New York to do an interview. And if anyone ever gets a chance, there was a very good piece on Phil Donahue, if you remember, we're dating ourselves here. <laughs> <laughs> it's on YouTube, but it's Gerald doing an interview with Phil Donahue and Rolf Mengele. And it's really very, it's, it's a very interesting, it's only 18, like 18 minutes, I think. And, um, and Gerald said, I want you to come meet him. And I was very, very, I have to tell you, very uncomfortable uh, because knowing my background 
and thinking, I don't know why, but I kept on thinking of my mother and I kept on thinking, what would my mother think if I'm going to meet <laughs> Joseph Mengele's son? Yeah. You know, it was just round and round in my head. And um, we eventually, I said, well, we have to meet somewhere really nondescript. I can't possibly, I mean, what I was thinking, I don't know. Maybe because someone was going to see me. How would they know who he was? You know, there's all these things going around in my head, like most people, you know, it's just, it was silly stuff. Yep. So eventually we met him in this hotel in this very kind of um, touristy tropical place called Tradevix, if anyone's went to New York. And we were both so uncomfortable when we first met. It was like, he was, as it was just terrible, you know. But eventually we chatted and then you realize, you know, you can't blame the children for the crimes of their parents, right? That's I had correct. to tell myself that. The only thing that did bother me was that he did know where his father was. And what most people you have to understand is that they wanted, the, the, the survivors wanted to find Mengele because they want to know the experiments, like you had mentioned before, what had been done on them. And so there, there might have been documents because they had back problems, headaches, eyes, all different types of stuff. The women were not able to conceive children from some of the... So that's what most of that was. And um, so we chatted and chatted. And in the course of the conversation, he told us about a family that knew this man that worked with, you know, with Mengele, his father, at Auschwitz, and it turned out to be Victor Capetius ah. of Auschwitz. And I kept on thinking in my head, I don't know why, Auschwitz had a pharmacy. I just, just <laughs> not thinking that the guards need, you know, probably get lice or different illnesses they have to be taken care of, or if they, you know, uh, the, the captains that work there or whatever. And um, when we walked home, um, I said to Gerald, you know, Auschwitz, you know, had a pharmacist. Now, bear in mind, no, you, no, no Google, no computer search. It was really down, down, paperwork and everything. You had to really get down and dig. And from that time, it just stuck in my mind you know, that one day I would have to dig in and find something. And I did find, you know, paperwork, not like, you know, going, as we said before, going back to Google. And that's how it came about. And then it took 30 years <laughs> to put it together. And then when I eventually did have an outline for the book, um, this publisher, Crux Publishing, uh, Crystal Sales, got in touch with Gerald. He wanted him to do a project on something else, another book. And Joe said, no, I don't have the time. I'm doing something with um, Simon the Schuster, which was God's Bankers, his book. Right. And, um, and so he said, but my wife has something you might be interested in. Because uh, uh, it was not true, because Joe did uh, Mengele, The Complete Story with John Weir, a book. So it was like an offshoot. And he said, well, send me the outline. I'll have a look at it. And we sent it to him. And he was very interested. And I did give it into a few publishers here, but no one was really interested in it. And can we just stop a second? Yes. Can I say that about the Holocaust is not trending? Okay. Oh, okay. I'm going to tell you something. Right. Okay. So um, I, I gave it into a couple of, couple of publishers here because I thought it'd be you know easier to do it here. And one publisher, very well-known publisher, told me the Holocaust is not trending at the moment. <laughs> so that took my breath away wow I, uh, I, uh, i'm sorry that wow the holocaust is not trending mm -hmm. so i i kind of took a breath and uh never know when you have to deal with these people again so i said okay and i was very 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 lucky to get christmas sales and the book now Bear in mind when you write a book, normally for a publisher you get an advance because you have to live on something, right? Pay the bills and mortgage. And Chris said to me, well, I'm going to do something with you. We're, we're going to do the book. I can't pay you in advance, but I will split whatever we make. And I said, it's fine. This is more a passion than a money-making thing. And Joe was doing God's Bankers at the time. So... He said, fine. But I have to say, I got so lucky. 
the book for some odd reason got hardly any publicity, got a few radio shows, no, no real big TV shows or anything. That's because uh, the Holocaust wasn't trending. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a couple of review, uh, a couple of reviews. It hit the wall street journal at number six USA today. And I have to say lucky for me and lucky the story is getting out there. That book is still doing well five years later. I believe it. Very, so, very, very, very lucky. So what did you find out about this guy? He wasn't just dispensing aspirin to the guards, right? You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com. Or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at narcononojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. No, no, no. He was, you know, prior to this. The interesting thing is, I think, how to look at it as well. This was an ordinary man who was a pharmacist that really wanted to go higher in his field. Married with three, three children. Um, his wife, from my research that I did, appeared to be half Jewish, which wow. was very interesting as well. Um, ambitious in his field. Not political. No anti-Semitism that I found, you know, in his background. He just wanted to go along and be in his business. So he got, he was, he was recruited into, he was in Dachau first and then ended up in Auschwitz. And Auschwitz was not, it wasn't a place that you would want to be assigned to, okay. put it that way. So he ended up in Auschwitz and he ended up on, um, on the railheads, making the choices, you know, like live or die or to go to um, the gas chamber. And uh, he also got assigned to, as when, when the trains came in and they dumped all their baggage, because if you're told you're leaving where you live and you're going somewhere else for your safety to be taken care of, you would pack everything that you thought was important to you, right? So in all these bundles, there was lots of stuff and he would ramage through it and take what he felt was for himself. So he, he really evolved into a completely different human being, uh, taking the gold from the teeth. Uh, whether that was in him or the environment brought it out in him, we'll never really know. But I will say that his behavior through that period and even to the end when he was... Um, captured, you know, wearing dark glasses in court and smiling and laughing. I mean, everything about him was peculiar in that respect. Um, and he, he also administrated the uh, Cyclone B. Cyclone B is the gas that was put into the gas chambers to, you know, kill the people that were in there. And so he did that. So he didn't, I mean, it wasn't like he said, I'm not going to do this. You know, I mean, uh, there, was, there was a chap before him that refused to do it. And there is, um, uh, I'm going to call my husband in for this one. 
Okay. So what was it? They they uh, he refused to um, that chap that refused to do the cyclone bleed. What was that? There's an actual word for it. The, the previous chief pharmacist at Auschwitz had been this executed. This is Joe Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Tricia, the uh, I've had the pleasure defeatism. of being defeatism. 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 He was yeah. It was executed for defeatism, but I don't think that if you would have refused to do anything, that would have actually have happened at this period. You know. Um, Interesting. You want to say? I just wanted to say a couple of things. In listening to this, uh, Joni and Trisha, Trisha said before. Um, first of all, you just I think those of you listening understand the power of what one person can do also with their lives. A lot of people who are listening have recovered from addiction, they're fighting addiction, they've had family members go through it. Tricia is an example of somebody who not only came from, we use overuse the word dysfunctional, dysfunctional household, but then left school at 16 and ends up writing books, not because she just sat down and started to scribble. I've seen this partner of mine work at making herself better, of making, at essentially bringing herself up to the point where she's able to stand there and somebody will say to her, they'll hear that British accent, they'll just assume she went to Oxford. No, she visited <laughs> once. So, um, and, and so you can do anything in, you know, in this life. It takes discipline and it takes work. She also said before that she was lucky with her book that five years later was still selling. You know what? There's no such thing as luck. No. But what moved her book wasn't a big ad campaign or celebrity hood or anything else. It was word of mouth. It's the old fashioned yeah. thing. So I buy books and most of us buy books when a friend that we trust tells us, Hey, I just read a great book and they tell us about it. And then we say, Oh, great. And we pick it up or a movie or whatever. <laughs> so Patricia's word of mouth has been super. And I don't want listeners to miss the fact that when she said before that Victor Capici is sort of this person that she writes about this ordinary man who ends up being presented the opportunity to advance in his career with this great evil at this concentration camp and then takes advantage of it. He worked for Bayer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah Let's I'm not sorry, forget yeah. that. A uh, company that many of you may know, the company that, you know, invented aspirin and invented heroin and invented barbiturates and phenobarbital and, and was part of this big consortium. And he was the country rep in Romania. So and then they were doing experiments at Auschwitz. Trisha found these documents in the archives in which they would do orders yeah. right, for women. For women, yeah. They would do orders for women. But what, the other thing that he just mentioned that was interesting the fact that he was a pharmacist and he would sell his products, you know, is that a lot of people that were that came off the trains on the front, they knew him. So wow. there was there's 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 uh, Capesius, you know, uh, Ella Solomon, Ella Solomon, you know, she was with her parents, and so you know, can you imagine? You get off, you think, oh, I'm going to be fine because there's Mr. So and So, he's going to take care of me. But there was no humanity i don't think the humanity had left him completely it, 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 and for those listeners who are not familiar i mean you have this concentration camp which ends up killing in the end an extermination center like a million people and next to it's a work center where people are slave labor and work which to was death. called um Mon uh, it was uh auschwitz three and it's interesting it took as much electricity in Auschwitz III as the whole of Berlin. Yeah, these so are that big, tells you how big. These are big, like plants, big it cities. Costs billions. I mean, would be, today it would cost billions of dollars to build. So this was, you know, this was about death and money. Yeah, death and money. The, uh, and and how much can we bump out? And and down to the point where they would actually count how many calories each individual would have. How much could they How give them, the minimum they could give them so they could still work without falling over, but just enough to survive. So death and money sounds a little bit like some pharmaceutical companies yeah. we've seen on, on opioids in the and, last uh, couple of decades. And the experiments, the drugs that were used on these people. The, but they, 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 you, when you say human experimentation before, Joni, and you said, it's, oh, yeah, I mean, they aren't just going in there as sadistic doctors and saying, oh, let's mm. poke them today with this. They're trying to turn brown eyes blue, blue because they're trying to create what they view as the master race, people that look more Aryan, not so gypsy and Jewish and dark. Uh, they're trying to uncover the reason that some mothers at birth give twins, 
the, and others don't, if they could unlock that, then they could replenish every German soldier who died in the war. That could Every good German mother could have two children afterwards instead of one. Uh, they were trying to find out how long if a German pilot was shot down right. in Finland in the north, could they survive in ice? ice. So they put you know people into ice baths until they died and see how long it was. So it went, and what Tricia mentioned before is interesting, I think, her person who was this Bayer pharmacist wasn't just a pharmacist at his own little store. No. He was the country rep. So he went around Romania where he lived before he was German, before he joined the SS, selling to all the doctors, clinics, and hospitals. Now, it turns out that about 30% of those doctors, clinics, and hospitals in Romania before the war were Jewish. And in, once they, the Germans start to kill all the Jews and send them to concentration right. camps, they ship them on these trains, these convoys to Auschwitz and the other centers. So for two or three days, they're in these cattle cars. Um, it's a horrible trip. They get their to Auschwitz food, often. Toilets, yeah, nothing. They're, nothing. And they're, they get to Auschwitz. They're, they're meant to arrive often at night. The Germans have these enormous lights focused on them. There are guard dogs everywhere barking. You come off, they unpadlock these trains. You're disoriented completely. And they start to separate the Nazis do men, women, and children into separate lines. So now families are being ripped right. apart for the first time. They're getting hysterical. They're getting hit with whips. And what she said is so fascinating. The people coming off these trains from Transylvania, from Romania, from Czechoslovakia, they didn't know any of these SS doctors from Germany. But her guy, yeah. who had never been written about before until she did, I'm sorry to get excited about this, but it's just an amazing story. Her guy... They knew because the ones being shipped in the spring of 44 were coming from the area in Romania he, where he had worked. So they saw him and they'd say, oh, that's Capesius. I'm going to be okay. Yeah, I know okay. that guy. I'm going to be okay. And, and yeah. he sent some to their death because the doctors had that yeah. right. And some he lets live and they testify against him in this dramatic moment years later. Yeah. I, it's a great story. So, Ella Solomon, actually, the one I just told you, she testified against him. But... I mean, he, he, he even made that into a conspiracy. He said that it was really somebody else and they were trying, they were trying to persecute him. I mean, it's just, a, it's, 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 an, it's an amazing little story. I mean, that's just one of many, so you can imagine. But, you, you know, also, the, we never do run out of things to talk to here, but we say this sometimes. I think that for people, let's say, again, you know, going for a lot of people listening to your podcast yes. uh, who are mad at Purdue or mad at a company. Let's say they're mad at Purdue for the marketing of Oxy content. And they look up and they see that Richard Sackler, that no good SOB, he really, you know, let them loose. But I will tell you something. One person doesn't make it happen. So you look at World War II and we hear about the big names all the time, Hitler and things like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're the ones making the decisions and running it. But Tricia took a fascinating thing. She took an ordinary person who, if not presented this opportunity, might not have embraced the evil and then let it go and became an efficient part of the killing machine and then stole the gold that had been taken yeah. out of people's teeth. So there are people operating, the doctors who are over-prescribing, they are the sales force what? who's overselling. There are a lot of the responsibility for an event like this and for events like the uh, opioid crisis, there's a lot of shared responsibility. But you know, you make a really good point, Gerald, because whether they were trying to make brown eyes blue, it doesn't really matter. It's it's not acceptable. It's not humane. It shouldn't be legal to experiment on humans. Excuse me. And a point I think for our listeners is I'm not going to say that a doctor is experimenting on you or your loved one when they prescribe certain medications, but you have it within your rights to ask what are the side effects of yes. said medication. Yes. And if the doctor can't tell you, he is in effect, experimenting with you yeah. because he doesn't know yes. what those effects can be. Very good point. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually uh, off topic completely. I can remember I used to take care of my mother and we were in England one time and uh, she's long gone past, God rest, you know. And uh, I asked, he mentioned something that she had and I asked him, could you please explain to me what you're saying? She has he went berserk. How dare you ask me? You have no right to do this. Who do you think you are? You've lived in America too long. He went absolutely bonkers. Yeah. So, it was a, but, and then just switching it one second from what you said, the interesting thing about you talking about Bear, 
so many people that have read my book, and it is word of mouth, you're 100% right, I was going to mention that, say to me, they can no longer buy Bear. They buy generic brand now. I can't tell you how many people have told me that. They've said to me, oh my goodness, After I can't buy Bear anymore. So I, I, I understand that. About that. Espe- you know. Especially when you realize you are paying a little bit more for that little mark that says genuine Bay or oh, aspirin genuine. as opposed to just the generic next door. They're exactly the same thing. Right. But you know, the, um, uh, Joni, what you were saying a second ago is something we believe not only do you need to ask the doctor what the side effects are, but a lot of doctors today specialize even the good ones. Yeah. So you go to a cardiovascular doctor, you go to a doctor for your knee, um, and uh, you know, go to somebody for your back or that. They're prescribing something often as a muscle relaxant or uh, maybe a, a, a statin for high cholesterol. And their, their focus is this narrow. They want to get down the condition, uh, treat the condition that you're going to them for, and they aren't looking at what else you might be taking. And that's absolutely critical because yes. you need to take that doctor out of their specialty and say, this is the entire picture. And I want you to focus on that. If you're on more than one medication, how does that work with other medications I'm taking? We know that part of the problem, you know, we talked about this when we were doing the work on pharma. Part of the problem on opioids was that people were combining them with so many other things like benzos and things like that that led them to, you know, suppression of the respiratory system and death. That's the, right. You need to ask doctors not just the effects I think of that pill, but your overall health picture. Well, even you know, you you know, coming back to the menopause book, when I would suggest certain things in my book, you know, if for instance a woman had breast cancer or cancer in her family, I would categorically tell them not to take vitamin E. So it, it it's not only just there are other things. You know, people are too ready to pop pills, and I think here. The other thing is the dosage in this country is extraordinary high the way they do it. You know, I always say if I, if I buy a vitamin bottle and it says take three, I take one. You know, right. it's just extreme. They're just, it's pill popping. And anybody yeah. was wondering what she was saying. She has been here for 40 years in America, but vitamin is still vitamin by our. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Trisha, question about Caprice, Caprice, is that his name? Yes, Caprice. Caprice. Did he experiment at all with psychiatric drugs? Well, we don't really have any uh, information on that at all. About okay, yeah. just curious. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you, you can only do so much research as you understand this so well. And if something happened like that, I've never come across it, no. I mean, obviously, Mengele, or Joe's book, Mengele, Complete Story, he did the most uh, appalling stuff. I mean, uh, right. grotesque. And, and there was, in fact, experimentation with psychiatric yeah. drugs, of Psychi- course. Yeah. And it, no question, with the Nazis, they used it oh, in part speed. of the euthanasia program, no, and mm-hmm. in psychiatric drugs, that, that mm-hmm. when they were killing people who were less than human. Right. They used, the Germans well, the Ge- had they been at the it. forefront. Yeah, of, but they used it, didn't they yeah. use it on the military as well? You know, uh, speed. Yeah, they were trying then to, right, to get them to perform better. And to there's no better. doubt. So the, the great conflict for those of us who are researchers, is that Germany was at the forefront of what we call patented medicines. You know, they were leading the, the way. Uh, right. World War II devastated them and allowed American pharma to dominate the industry. Well, they also, and also Hitler uh, got rid of all the scientists uh, that were working on projects. And, and, you know, he was warned, they said to him, you know, if you do that, they won't be around for 100 years. He said, well, good with that. Just get rid of all of them. Yeah, there's an amazing little scene Trisha uncovered in these documents in her yeah. book. Um, Bosch, who, who ran um, uh, Bosch, the electric company that we now hear of this big scientific concern before the war. Uh, when Hitler gave the order, you've got to get rid of all your Jewish scientists and that. He said, if we get rid of the Jews in the labs and that, they, there are a lot of scientists and researchers will be set back in chemistry and physics for 100 years. And Hitler said to him, well, then that's, we'll be set back 100 set years. That's, wow. His hate was so deep. So what happened to um, Capetius? What happened to him? Uh, he was, you said he was on, was on trial as one of the war criminals. What happened? Well, he got captured. Um, he got recognized by, um, what year was that? Right after the war. Right after 45, he got recognized. And he, but he got, I think he was given... Well, how many of there was? How many of them were on trial at that period? There was seven. He got seven years. He actually did two years. Yeah, seven years he got, and he got two years. But that was all. But in between wow. his capture, I mean, because he's 
he's captured and let go. Oh, yeah, right? captured. Yeah. yeah. Goes they had the... to do these, um, he had to fill in these forms. Uh, what were the name of them? Yeah, the denazification. They were denazification uh, forms. So he would fill them in, of course, lie on all of them. Right. And so he would manage to, you know, go under until, you know, all the time, back and forth, back and forth. And really. He, and he had stolen. So people say, how is it possible oh, yeah. that a guy like this, who was the chief pharmacist, got away? But Nobody He's, knew about him. Even people who know, we ran into, we went to speak at a Holocaust Ava center Paul. in Terre Haute, Indiana, called Candles. It's children of Nazi deadly lab experiment survivors. And Ava Kor, who was from Romania, never and with her sister was an experiment victim at Auschwitz, had never heard of this doctor. See, yeah, the, the, the problem is there are so many of these Capesians around, because you've got like 7,000, say, just in Auschwitz. Working, right. Right. And, and so, but, but we only hear about the Mengele's or Eichmann, you know, the, the names that we're familiar with in history. So it, it was easy for him to go under the radar and not get captured so easily and his punishment as well. And Joni, if I can just interject. So we're the Mutual Admiration <laughs> Society here. So whereas I keep in my books, I keep finding information that I make a footnote out of it and then I put it as a source note and the next thing you know, it's, the size of a door blocker that is like seven, 800 pages. Trisha, I would say to her, so I research, I'm her researcher on her book. She's my researcher on my book. And then she writes the first draft of her book. I write the first draft of mine. And I would keep saying to her, Trisha, including your draft, this information, it's really good. And she would say, nope, it's not my story. I'm just writing about the pharmacist of Auschwitz. And that's why her book is a fast and good 200 page read. But my favorite part of it personally is when it moves from the camp to, to again heroes. show you what can happen with the power yeah. of people. To, one, yeah, one, uh, Herman Langbein and Fritz Bauer. And they really came to the fore. One was, a, uh, one was a, a survivor of the camp. Another one was a, the first German prosecutor in Germany. And they really, really were dogged. They would not stop till they got them man exactly. And that's how these two powerful people came together. It took them 20 and years. Yeah, it took 20 years, but they never stopped. Yeah, so they the never trial stopped. for Capesius takes place in yeah. the mid 60s. Well, actually, because he got uh, Mengele. Yeah, they got him as they, oh, they didn't even put an indictment yeah. on him. What were and the charges against Capesius? Well, what did you say they were? They were Everything from an, uh, intentional Intent, murder. Intentional right, murder, quote, yeah. Quote, down the list to aiding, you know, the, what Aid, we think of aiding and abetting. Aiding and abetting, yeah. So here's the key part. This you is the lawyer in me. No, he's I'm the so lawyer. <laughs> oh I my remember. God, this trial. I love this trial because it makes my head blow up. <laughs> they, he, he was the only one of 22 defendants charged with intentional murder who intentional was acquitted murder. of that because they said all he did was he just passed on the poison gas that was used in the system. Right. He was just part of the machinery. He didn't kill anyone with his own hand. He directed them to the gas chambers. He didn't kill them with his own hand. He didn't take a gun out and shoot them. So that's why he only gets the seven years. And what happens when he's released, Tricia? He goes home. And um, when he walks, they go, he walks into a theater or opera house and people stand up and applaud him. Yeah, pretty amazing. Like your home. Wow. And lived, he was at 84. Yeah, they thought he got a bum deal. They thought he got a bum deal, yeah. Wow. Because there was a few in Germany, they were just doing their they jobs. Ju yeah, exactly. They I just remember. Jobs. Yeah. yeah, I and remember. It's interesting because the other thing that you find so chilling is that, I have pictures in the book on this, is that you see the camp and then they need, you know, the guards and the people working there need to take a break. And you see them up in the mountains, playing music, dancing, singing. And it's just over there. If they look, the smoke is coming out the chimneys and you can actually smell it. And it, so it shows you how, I mean, callous. I mean, it's just, it, it's chilling. It's really, really chilling. And, and yeah. drinking beer and eating. I, I yeah. think people who are involved in something terrible can often come up with reasons why they weren't responsible. And we were saying, so, okay, somebody from Berlin, somebody in the Nazi hierarchy made the decision to create concentration camps. Mm. Somebody else made the decision to gas the Jews. Now you're sent there as the chief pharmacist. You have a decision to go along with it or not. He's stealing the gold that he used later to open up a pharmacy. 
He was running a pharmacy, by the way, named after himself in post-war Germany. Hard to imagine. Yes, but you can't make this up. Beauty by Capetius. Beauty by Capetius. Not kidding. I'm kidding wow. you not. So he opened a pharmacy in West Germany with the gold he stole. All right. But the he's responsible for having carried out, just like in, bring it back to opioids for one second. Right. Purdue, for instance, their sales force is overly marketing. They're too aggressive. They're right. out there telling doctors it can be used for arthritis and everything else that's not approved for. However, you as a doctor who's over-prescribing and running a pill mill cannot say, oh, you know what? They told me that it was fine for this. And I wrote prescriptions around the clock. You can't do it. You have to then accept responsibility for what you're doing. So Capesius is right. Auschwitz was there before he arrived, yep. but he then made it run by participating in it yep. and doing it. Absolutely. What is what would you say is some of the fallout from him? Are there things we see today in oh, companies like Bayer or IG Farben, for example? Is there are there things that we see today that are the fallout? Do you know what I mean when I say that? I don't understand what you mean. I don't really think. Do you think so? I don't. I don't know really. I don't think there's the the German companies like Bayer. So IG Farben got wiped out at the end yeah. of the war. They okay. tried all the defendants. You've got yeah, to they, yeah, yeah, on them. I have that they got off with slaps on the wrist. But the German companies have paid restitution. Yes. So they said, okay, sort of like big pharma pays big fines. Oh, yeah. got caught? Okay, we'll pay a billion dollars. Sorry. Right. Oh, we'll pay two billion. And they go on. Uh, and that's what happened here. That, that's definitely that. But that's. And there was a great little footnote, by the way, that the Bayer team that invented aspirin in 1898, two years before they did uh, uh, heroin. Oh. When they did the official history of the company during the Nazi period, they dropped out the yeah. creator of the team because he was Jewish. <laughs> and then they put him back in 40 years later. So Bayer can get it right, but it takes a while. <laughs> wow. Wow. So let me ask you this. So based on the research that you did, knowing that the listeners of this podcast are either loved ones of addicts, addicts themselves, or former addicts. If based on what you know now, if there was one message you would give them, what would it be? Mm. Gerald already did it, so you're on the spot, Tricia. (laughs) To survive, to survive. And I think that's the biggest punishment of all to all of those bad people, whether they're Nazis, Purdue, doctors, pharmacists, is to survive and flourish and just keep keep trying to, you know, take one day at a time, that's all you can do, you know, and surround yourself with the right people and just believe in yourself, you know, that it's so, I, I understand to a degree addiction, but I don't understand it, but it's just, it's a, you know, I think I have two very good friends that are ex-heroin addicts and alcoholics and opioids. And they believe for them, okay, that they do, they've been doing 27 years and 32 years, one of them. And they believe for them, what works for them is doing meetings, reaching out to other people, helping other people, just keep, just keeping in contact to try and, and, and never forget where they came from. I mean, right now is a very difficult period for a lot of these people because we're in this cl- close down, right? So we assume everybody has a phone and everybody has a computer, but not everybody has a phone or a computer. So my particular friends are doing reach out on doing, you know, the podcast, I mean, um, Zoom and stuff like that. And some of them are just holding on by a thread because the meetings are a very where they touch each other it's a very physical thing and you know not just communicating it means you know it's having a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and they're having a piece of cake it's a whole thing they're hanging on to each other by a thread so i just think everybody needs to reach out to each other and realize that this is a very very difficult time the and you know, she's just an oh. And just to add uh, one thing to what uh, Trish was saying, the, um, and Joni, to add one thing to what Trish was saying, is that we have learned from her book and from working years ago on a different book, uh, The Power of the Human Spirit, when people are at their lowest, when you think you can't get back up and do anything, she interviewed survivors who, after the war, were children, 
at seven and eight years old whose entire family had been yeah. killed at the camp. Uncles, aunts, mothers, father, everybody. They're left with their sister. They're adopted by some family. They don't know anything about their background and they are on the bottom and they make a life for themselves. They don't just survive. They make a life for themselves. There's this indomitable part of the human spirit. Sometimes it can flourish. If it, it, yeah, well, some so, people have it and some people don't. And right. then other people need support. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no you lose support. That, When you lose a support system, it's very, very hard. And I think Agreed. right now is very, very difficult for people. So and they just have to hang on and realize that, you know, it will, it can get better and it will get better. But you can't expect everyone to have that strength. It's, nope. No, some people just don't have it. They might fall off, but they can get back on. You know, doesn't mean if you fall off that you can't get back on and move up again. That's right. And you know, reach out, I think, is, is also... Reach out, reach out. I mean, it's very hard, I think, when one is not in that position to be able to, you know, preach or lecture to someone. But being around people and seeing... I see people that I know that have really, really done an amazing job with their life, coming from appalling backgrounds and addiction. And I, I mean, I have another particular friend, you know, I'm talking about a male friend. His whole family were addicts, every single one of them. He's the only one. And he said if he did not get out of that environment, he would not have survived. So it, it can be done. It's, it's not easy. For some, it's a little easier than others. I mean, people ask me how I got through mine. I just had a little inner voice that used to talk to me. I don't know how, why or when, but I just would look in the mirror and say, I'm not going to be like that one. I'm not going to be like this one. I'm moving on out. I am taking another journey and a different path. I'm not going to be like these people, you know, and um, I think coming to America was a good thing for me. <laughs> it helped me. Probably. So how can people get your book, Tricia? Um, Amazon. Okay, the pharmacist in Kindle or or uh, on paperback is available. The pharmacist I of Auschwitz. The pharmacist of Auschwitz. Yeah, right. I have. Okay, I could give you a. Hang on one second. Sorry to be rude. That's okay. Ah, uh, there we go. Perfect. And the newest copy that you would get, actually, if you order, we'll it has a little seller. stamp that says "National Bestseller" because it is. Perfect. Thank you so much for spending Thank your time you. with us Thank today. You. I must say this. So you talk about people have, you know, this was so hard for me. I know no one can believe this, but this is, I, before I'm like heart palpitations, dry mouth. So if I can do this, people can do anything. Believe me. And I, also what you're doing, we talked about this. Trisha wanted to do this because what you're doing at yes. the Addiction Podcast, you and Steve, is remarkably important. And um, I hope that in some way somebody finds a, a string or a thread here that gives them a little bit of hope about uh, what they're doing in their own life. Well, I think they will. And thank you both so much. You guys are freedom fighters in my book. And you. your willingness to confront evil, I think, is it's there. And you have. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. You know, what I take away from this is, you know, you had a pharmacist in Germany who teamed up with the Nazis to do horrific things probably in his mind in the name of progress with drugs, I don't know. But I don't think it's a very far cry from very dangerous, addictive opioids being marketed to every single doctor in the country and then being told that it's not addictive. So the, the point I think I would take away from this is that you can't just take the doctor's word for it and you do need to research. If your doctor doesn't know what the side effects are, well, then you need to find out what they are. And, you know, we had an interview recently with Pamela Seafeld from Clearwater. And you can always call her and ask her because she'll give you the straight dope on it. So thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check us out on YouTube. I need more subscribers on YouTube, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel. And we will be back again next week with a new interview. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.